John, I miss you at the World Series. Uh, they're playing it without you, but uh, we'll talk about that. We also have uh, Scott Boris, who has a lot of free agents coming up as soon as the uh, World Series is over. Yeah, I'm sorry to not be there. I think a few people are missing this World Series. It's too bad. I think it's a very intriguing series. Uh, Boris should be great. Great timing. He doesn't have Otani, but he's got Snell. He's got Montgomery, Bellinger, Chapman. Uh, he just got Alonzo, who's not quite a free agent, but there's a lot to talk to him about. I bet you we ask him about Alonzo. We'll do that World Series talk. We'll play hit or error if you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next? Last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help. From fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. John, as we're doing this, we're four games uh, through the World Series. The Texas Rangers lead that World Series, the 119th World Series, three games to one. Uh, let's just do a macro point here. What has stood out to you that might transcend the moment? I'll go first. It's hard to say that a guy who won the NLCS MVP in the World Series MVP, as Corey Seager did in 2020, and receive a $325 million contract was somehow, I don't know if the right words, underrated, underappreciated, not fully understood. But I have to this point, as I'm talking to you, watched 14 Texas Ranger games in a row. He is a much better defender than his reputation. He is a great base runner, and he would be on the short list. Do you want to take Alvarez? You want to take Freeman? It might be Seeger. He walks a lot. He hardly strikes out. He hits for average. He hits for power. It doesn't matter if it's lefty or righty. Corey Seeger, I mean, it's I shouldn't be I have to say this. He got $325 million, is a great baseball player absolutely and right and, and the short list of the great hitters i'd throw probably soto in that name i think you've got four right there you, someone might want to put a cunha in there or bets but uh that's basically the top four or six hitters in the game and judge uh, we shouldn't throw out, forget about judge we are in new york he's quite a great hitter himself uh mine is a, a even more macro point about uh, free agency uh we went through a season in which the padres and the mets had signed so many big players and spent so much money and it didn't work out for him in this postseason we're seeing the value of spending the money bryce harper up until that last game spectacular play he's been a great postseason player and same obviously with Seager whose numbers are almost identical his power numbers to Reggie Jackson Mr. October and those are pretty good numbers yeah Reggie Jackson one of three guys to win two World Series MVPs the only one to do it for two different teams and John maybe the next time we're on doing this show we'll be saying the same thing 
uh, about Corey Seager. Corey Seager's agent is Scott Boris. Uh, he's about to become a very, very busy man when the uh, World Series is over and the free agent rush begins. He joins us next on the show. John and I are pleased to have the first person who I think was a live guest for us on the show. And he was so kind because we had the smallest audience in American history and not the greatest place. But uh, Scott Boris, you are a good sport and a good soldier to help us then. And we appreciate you being on the show again with us. Look, it's no surprise at this time of year, uh, shortly after the World Series ends, uh, the hot stove begins in full. And Scott Boris will have a full slate of big free agents, Cody Bellinger, Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, who the world has seen in the postseason, how great he's pitched, Reese Hoskins, Paxton, Ryu, et cetera. So I wonder if I could just start with a big picture question. What are you doing right now preparation-wise? You've been to a lot of these rodeos where you have a whole lot of players to be able to do stuff with in about a 90 to 150-day period. What does an agent do right now to kind of prepare for what's going to be the kind of running of the bulls in a few days? Well, actually, Joel, that, that began in March. I have a staff of, we have 154 people in our company and everyone has designations about what we do. And so we have international players. We've got, you know, our current major league players. And so we start developing their free agent brochures, as we call it. Uh, where we're chronicling their seasons, their histories. We also begin around June of, of examining the teams, how well they are doing financially, how their owners are doing financially, how well the club is doing in relationship to its division, to its league, to their goals. Uh, we have recorded histories of every general manager, president, owner, that the things they have said to us over the past about their goals. So we're always trying to update, unite, collect information. Uh, whenever a team is removed from the playoff structure, we begin communicating with them at every level, uh, minor league, major league, to determine what their needs are, what their projections are, what, what they're doing try to talk to every club if we can, you know, at minimum every 10 days, every week. So we have, it's in a very involved, our free agent team is about 35 people that are 24 seven committed to uh, the dynamic of understanding what each team's needs are. And then obviously uh, the uh, we're, we're watching the postseason as it evolves adding all that information for our clients that are performing to their free agent brochures, what they do. So it's a, uh, it takes really an army to do this correctly, to get all the information from all sides, to provide the player with all the information he needs to make a decision. Yeah. I'm going to be a little more specific. You have a ton of great free agents, but one of them is Cody Bellinger, who uh, obviously has been linked to one of the teams in New York is dead. Certainly played for the Yankees, a left-handed great center fielder. It seems like the best fit of all the free agents for the Yankees actually could fit the Mets as well. Why shouldn't he just stay in Chicago? He regained his MVP type form in Chicago and why do you think that he is that MVP player again after having a couple of really off years? Um, 
in the previous couple of seasons. Well, when you look at players, you have to say, who are they in the current? And what does their track record provide them to give you clarity as to what they're going to do in the future? I remember when I was doing Seeger's contract, and he's a 28-year-old free agent, which has special significance. Because when you have 26, 27, 28-year-old free agents, they are really at free agency well before the customary age of free agency, which is 30, 31, 32. So they have an advantage. They have valuations and they have younger years to offer, which are hugely important in evaluation. But when you look at a player, you're saying, in Seeger's case, he was he had Tommy John surgery. He had hip surgery after his third season. Then he came out into his fourth season, and he was still recovering from the surgeries, performed well, but not at Seeger-like levels. And then he goes into and has another quality season. And then in his free agent season, he gets hit by a pitch, and he misses. He only plays 91 games. So what does every team say? Oh, well, he missed time in the platform season. He missed time earlier in his career. You know, does he have a durability issue? Does he have a performance issue? All these things arise. And, of course, you counter that with, look, when you have injuries, is it really him or is it the injury that is causing the performance deficit? And you illustrate that usually by current performance saying, now that he's healthy, now that he's back to his norm, he is performing at what his skill level truly is without the detriment of an interruption due to injury that resulted in him performing less than a skill. So our point is with any player that has had an injury, um, had a surgery, uh, you point out, we're not going to look at his performance immediately after the surgery until he fully gets up to a level of competence. But the truth of the matter is, in the current season, like a Seeger case, where you exhibited the skill level that he had earlier in his career, and it's current and it's there, you have now removed the cloud of a, a, a skill diminution a person, a player who's no longer what he was. He's back to what he is. And those ty- that type of evidence is relevant in any free agent that you go forward with. And certainly it applied to Seeger. And, and many clubs had objection. You know, having gone through the Bryce Harpers and the Seeger uh, type negotiations where teams had an opportunity to sign these players. And I have notes and notes of the rhetoric that is offered. And then as they look back and you say, we don't have an opportunity to get these 26, 27, 28-year-old free agents very often. Few men are able to amass six years of service by this age. And when they're available, the fact that teams and owners do not capitalize on them has proven to be a dramatic error for a lot of organizations. What, what, Scott, you mentioned it. Uh, you know, these are especially you watch this postseason, Bryce Harper and uh, Corey Seager. They're two of the best players and certainly players who have risen to the moment. What's the rhetoric? Why, why do 
What what do you hear when owners do not want to sign players of this? I had I had four teams tell me that 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 Bryce Harper is somebody they only wanted to invest in for three or four years. And he was 26 years old. And I would say, could you please give me the data that would substantial substantially support why you would say that? And they're going off the fact that he had certain nicks in his current season or in the prior season, that he had an MVP season. He didn't perform as well in the prior seasons as he did his MVP. And although I give them historical information about Hall of Fame players that have certainly seasons due to injuries or or illness, but when you have Hall of when you have MVP type talent at this age, it is something that continually repeats itself, and frankly, more often at the ages of twenty eight on to thirty four to thirty six and on, and that having the and by the way, when are you going to find another player like that in a decade? And the answer is. There's only, you know, there may be less than 10 to 12 of these players that prop up every decade that you have an opportunity to build a franchise around. And so the great thing about studying uh, the conduct of teams and executives and owners is that you get to look back over a 20-year history and say, why didn't I? And the answer largely is my annual budget. The ebbs and flows of talent do not conform with the annual budget of a team. You're going to have to make movements based on talent, not based on annual budgets. And you go acquire a player looking at your budget over a 10-year period rather than looking at it annually. And those clubs that have done that have been rewarded significantly for the acquisition of these rare talents because it allows you to achieve championship objectives. It allows you to recruit players. You know, Bryce Harper was actually very smart, not economically, but in how he wanted to pursue a championship because his idea was, I'm going to show the fans and all other players that I'm going to a place for a long time and I'm going to be there for a long time and I'm going to recruit players because they know they're going to play with me and I've committed and I want you to commit. And that ideology grows where you attract others to support your winning ways. And it's a valued, a very valued dynamic for owners and teams to look at and say, if you're looking at your club under an annual budget, you will miss opportunities that may graduate the value of your franchise well over a billion dollars in a decade if you have those select players. Now, Scott, you've gotten a number of enormous contracts, some record contracts. The Harper contract was a record at the time in length and in total dollars. And I know at this point, it's been referred to as a bargain contract at $330 million with no opt-out. And someone might say that about Seeger now, too, as Lindor makes more than Seeger, when Seeger is probably the best shortstop in baseball. How do you look back on this? Are there, the fact that some people are now saying they're bargain deals, uh, particularly the Harper one, where he has no opt-out. Um, how did that come about? And, uh, you know, is there anything you could have done about that? Because... Uh, you know, you obviously could have opted out and, and added another couple hundred well, million dollars. I think Bryce's point was I created the opt out with Alex Rodriguez. So Bryce was fully aware 
And I may have been in my notes, I may have advised him on this six different times. <laughs> this is not the economic way to do this. Bryce's point of view was, look, I'm going to go there and commit. I'm going to go there and win. I want to show the fans that I like them and in one place. And we're going to win this way. And then when the time comes after I produce and prove what I do, if I have discussions or matters related to economics, I want the owner to say, in which I give John Middleton a lot of credit, he did say, is that Bryce Harper is undervalued. And that's the whole goal. He gave him a record contract. After three or four years of performance, he's delivered more than expected. And then the player, if he has economic uh, dynamics that he wants to discuss, he'll do so with his ownership. And that's how Bryce felt. Now, for a lawyer, you want to have a little bit more control of that sinetting. But the fact of the matter is, my job is to listen to my clients and do what they uh, tech me to do. And, and really what I care about is they're making informed decisions. And Bryce clearly was when he made that decision. As far as Seeger's case, the valuation of his contract is he doesn't have deferral in it and Lindor does. And so that valuation is, I, I would say, on the end where Seeger is more valued. But but the point of it is it was a, a fair market evaluation. Maybe it wasn't the highest, but for Seeger's pursuits, there was a general manager and an owner that had a design, a vision, and that Seeger wasn't going to Texas unless they signed Simeon. Simeon wasn't going to Texas unless they signed Seeger. These men had winning designs on what they're doing, and the ownership and the general manager, Chris Young, agreed with that philosophy to start this franchise and really escalate it to immediate winning levels. Because remember, when they went there, this is a 100-plus loss franchise. And so these, these steps were required for these players to commit to an ownership and a venue and in a collaborative way, because I represent both of them, they were able to understand completely what each other was doing and, um, and basically build a championship-level team that they can go from a 100-loss team and in two years – be where they're at in the World Series. Just to follow up on Harper, because you mentioned that John Middleton even sees him as underpaid at this point. Uh, and I think we all agree that uh, it's been an incredible success. Him in Philadelphia is like perfect for that town. Um, is there anything that can be done now? While it was a record term at 13 years, he's only 38 when the contract is up. Is there anything that you can do? Uh, you obviously, He's obviously not putting in an opt-out. Can you, can you extend that contract or is that crazy? Uh, no, uh, Bryce has mentioned that he uh, wants to sit down with ownership and time and talk about it. He wants to achieve all of his goals in Philadelphia. He wants to obviously play into his, you know, early 40s. He has all those goals. He wants to really do everything he can to put up Hall of Fame numbers. I, I think he's uh, committed to the game, committed to his city, and all those conversations will be coming forward uh, at an appropriate time. Can I ask you something I really don't know the answer to, Scott? Can players uh, collude? Can Simeon and Seeger know what are going on in each other's negotiation and say, if I don't go, I'm going with you or you're going with me? Like, well, I, I think that players are free to tell their attorney whatever they so choose. And so my job is that I take individual players and give them, uh, give that information to the franchise about what they want to do. And so 
the idea of it is is that certainly on a on a basis of understanding that uh, what the team then says we're going to sign you and sign others um, that certainly gives the insight to the player of of what they may do. Scott, uh, on on the free agent market, one of the things that's fascinating is if you want a left-handed starter, uh, Paxton, Ryu, Snell, Montgomery, you, I'm not probably going to jump in. You'll jump in and probably tell me I'm missing one or two more. Uh, you, you've got the top of the market here. And I obviously, probably because of the Yankee connection, I do find Montgomery fascinating. Free agent-wise, what do you think he's become as he's been traded into two pennant races and excelled the last two years and excelled in the postseason? You know, when I, when I was doing, uh, uh, we were going through the process of Garrett Cole's negotiation. One of the wise things the Yankees did is they brought Andy Pettit to that meeting. Him and Booney and Cash did a, a remarkable job of describing uh, about why they felt Garrett Cole would be successful in New York. And Andy Pettit talked about his career. And that caused me to, after the meeting, to sit down with Andy and talk about why he was such a great postseason pitcher. He goes, I'm not, I, I, I'm, I was never the power pitcher, but I was the pitcher with the pitch. And that I knew what pitches to throw to certain hitters and his cutter and, and certain spins he would put on the ball. He had a mentality about what to do in the postseason. Well, Jordan Montgomery is the modern-day Andy Pettit, mentally and emotionally particularly, is that he in these games – I mean, when you're facing a Houston lineup and you can go out and collect for your team, you know, three victories against that lineup, <laughs> particularly with Alvarez and everything and all they're doing – I thought it was something where it really reminded me of what Pettit did. Pettit won big games and a lot of them. And Jordan Montgomery has that dynamic about him. Where he's got spin on the breaking ball. You know, he's got the pitches. He locates his fastball extraordinarily. I mean, he still throws 93, 94. But remember when he was called upon, he was called upon to pitch in that last game in game seven without outside of his routine. He went in and did what is that he really stabilized, lengthened that game and gave the Rangers an opportunity to to uh, really put themselves in a position to blow out the Astros in the later innings. So that's that's the uniqueness of Montgomery, you know, as Snell is really what people don't look at. Sometimes I look at is that Montgomery, for example, has 650 less innings on his arm than Nola. That's that's like three to four seasons less. When you're looking at Snell, he has like 990 innings. So when you're looking at great young pitchers, and Snell is more of the dominant dynamic. I remember when I we started representing Snell three four years ago. Everybody talked about you got to throw more strikes. You got to more more strikes. Well, from my playing days, one of the hardest things to hit was a pitcher with great velocity that you didn't know if it was going to be a strike up in the zone or not. And it caused you to chase. And then when you had to worry about a breaking ball that was also in and out of the zone with tremendous 12 to six spin, you were in a conundrum of really not knowing what to do. And this is why I said to Blake, it doesn't matter. Walks are different. The whip category applies to 
the comprehensive league. But your compartment is because when you walk hitters, they don't score. That's the point. The idea is how many runs score and what you do. And it makes you dominant. And dominance is what you're about. And that has been proven by him in the postseason, been proven by the current. A guy with low innings on his arm, he's really learned himself. And all of a sudden now I think he he offers potentials of a true number one. And when you look worldwide, there aren't number ones out there. They're, they're a rare, rare bird. You got to have velocity. You got to have strikeout dynamics. And, and we know what those types of pitchers can mean to a franchise as to what Garrett Cole meant to the Yankees. So uh, again, in the, in the marketplace, it's hard to find these guys. They don't come along very often. And I think that's kind of what, what Blake means to this marketplace. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Blake Snell. Fascinating case. Absolutely. Uh, very likely to win his second Cy Young. In his other years, I don't believe he had more than 130 or 140 innings. So it's interesting to see what you, where do you think he places? You know, when I did my free agent, my first free agent list, I had Yamamoto ahead of Snell. And I just saw one recently uh, that it also had Yamamoto ahead of Snell and Snell down at 120 million or something like that. Where do you, well, now I think that's a bit low, but where, where do you think Snell fits in? Obviously, you did the Cole deal for 324 million. You've gotten the uh, Strasburg 235 million. You've had a lot of big time pitchers. Uh, you know, some teams are going to say you know, Snell doesn't have the consistency of, of certainly of a Cole. Uh, but where do, where do you think he might fit in? Why why would he why should he fit in even where Strasburg was, who was the World Series MVP? Well, let me let me talk to you about what I call or apart from the parties, the individual athletes. Let's just look at data. And the data is that when you're talking about a six foot five left-handed pitcher who throws 98 miles an hour and has dominated the league, just dominated it. Uh, and he's now winning not a first, but a second Cy Young. You can't say that when you're winning two Cy Youngs in a career and you're not even 30 years old, that this is inconsistency. What this is, is the exhibition of dominance as applied is that you have literally three seasons where he was on par to throwing that 180-plus why? Well, because you have the 20 season, which he didn't throw the 180, but he was throwing at the volume levels of all the all the elite starting pitchers. And then you have two other seasons and more importantly, the most current season where he's done that. The other part of it is he's never the reasons that he wasn't throwing the innings had nothing to do with his arm or shoulder. That's the other part. When you're talking about size, we go back and look at the record of 5'11 or below pitchers in the major leagues. Not in other leagues, in the major leagues. When we look at that size quotient and we look at the number of pitchers that have durability and have dominance, all of a sudden you realize that that's a different category and, and, the, and the other element of it is. The other thing I look at is that you can say that, you know, how are they doing currently? And when you have a pitcher that's giving up a lot of hits, 10 hits a game in the postseason in Japan. Obviously, that's something about how well hitters see their fastball. It might have velocity, but how? what kind of movement? How well do they see it? So Blake Snell is not in the category of any pitcher 
in this market because of dominance that he's exhibited not once, but twice. And the fact that when you're talking about durability, I point to the fact that the normal starting pitcher has 1,400 to 1,600 innings on his arm when he's going into this. That is a benefit for a future owner, not a detriment, because his pitching odometer is something that allows him. And this is, I did this with Max Scherzer when he had like 1,200 innings, or Garrett Cole had 1,100 innings. His innings were titrated when he was young that allowed him to go on and win both those cases, win Cy Young awards in their 30s and be highly durable, well beyond the standard of the majority. But this is about who you represent, right? If you're representing Yamamoto, you you tell us about David Cohn and Pedro Martinez, not very big right-handers who were very durable for a long time, right? I would say to you that in any of these cases, the, this these pitchers are good. I've I went to Japan. I saw them pitch. This is a really good pitcher. No no doubt about it. Can really really help a major league team. No question. Not saying that at all. This guy throws 95, 96. Good. There's other Japanese pitchers there that are better, and you know, and they're younger and they're not available. But for in this market, they are. But when you're talking about a two time signing award winner. When you're talking about Jordan uh, Montgomery, who are proven here in the postseason, that is a different category. And these are men that show the normal size quotient that allows for less factors. Remember, how many six foot three and above pitchers are winning Cy Young Awards? A whole bunch. How many are five foot 11 and below? Very few. That's the point. I'm not saying they don't exist, I'm just taking the probabilities upon which you base gradients for investment weigh heavily in the favor of a guy like a Snell or a guy like Montgomery versus a five foot 11 pitcher. Uh, Scott, you represent uh, a year from now, the possibly the two sluggers hitters people will be looking at, right. And Pete Alonzo and Juan Soto. They are people who are being discussed right now as potential trade possibilities. I wonder if you could take it. Do you anticipate that either of your clients will get traded this offseason? I think it's hard to say for a franchise that if you want to win, you trade these players. I just think it's really a very difficult thing for ownership and baseball ops to explain because they're, you know, these are men that can have 900 OPSs, 1,000 OPSs. Uh, they're extraordinary in their own ways at what they do. Um, you have a power quotient in Pete Alonso that is something. And the other thing about Pete Alonso is that Pete Alonso plays every day. Juan Soto plays every day. These men are on that field, and everybody takes durability for granted. But when you have extraordinary talent and you have durability to go with it, and you have a work ethic that these men have, they also have the character that goes with greatness that's so so to say that an organization is going to do something and i'm not saying it hasn't happened in the past because there are rare occasions has but it's it's hard to build for the upcoming year knowing and saying you are doing everything you can to win when you have one of the most elite players in the game that you're moving it it has a tone of i'm looking beyond the current season and I think those are hard things to give up for a franchise. 
You know, we we both love Pete Alonso. He's great in the clubhouse. He's obviously homegrown. David Stearns, the uh, new Mets baseball president, mentioned that at his uh, press conference. But it feels like he's a year from free agency, that he maybe he's going to go to free agency. Do you think there's any chance uh, that you guys will have the opportunity to sit down with the Mets and try to work it out in advance? And also, uh, Freddie Freeman, who I think we all agree is – maybe the best hitter or certainly one of the best five hitters in the game got a deal for $161 million and Paul Goldschmidt got a deal for 125 million. Why should Pete Alonso get more money than them? Well, I, you know, we all work in different markets and I got Mark to share a contract where he became a world champion with the Yankees for 180 million in 2007. I don't believe that Goldschmidt was a free agent when he signed his contract, which is different right structure. And I also understand that I got Prince Fielder a contract near 220 million in 2011. So there are different markets, different representation, different dynamics you look at. And also the revenue system of the game has dramatically changed over the last few years. We were at 8 billion, 7 billion back in you know 2010, and now we're in the in the 13 to 14 billion dollar models going forward. So as revenues change, the values of players change. So, so when we get into antiquated markets, you have to look at the fact that those are considerations because as the quid pro quo of baseball goes, if the revenues go up, um, then the values of players go up. If the revenues go down, the values of players go down. So consequently, we we have to look at that in every market. Um, the idea of demand also is a big factor in, uh, in the market of, of what players' considerations were. So I don't think those recent contracts, certainly negotiated by others, are really relevant to um, anything that has to do with what's going to happen in the future, particularly for Pete Alonso. And my standard with teams is, is that your job is to listen. And I am open and uh, free to discuss with any executive, any owner at any time, anything about our players. We welcome all offers. Uh, we uh, certainly present them, discuss them with the players we represent. And uh, we really try to have as open a dialogue as we can and also have a an exchange of information because I think it helps the parties uh, even if you don't get a deal done, you it helps the parties understand one another and the clarity. So, so we invite negotiations, we invite discussions, we invite offers, and certainly welcome any team that wants to discuss anything with any one of our players to do so. You know, Scott, we, we've made a lot of the players that uh, were with the Yankees and, for that matter, the Mets and are starring with other teams in the postseason. And a couple who got away who are Bryce Harper and – Corey Seager, um, you know, I kind of sort of understood at that time the Yankees had Stanton, they had Judge, um, so Harper wasn't the perfect fit in the Yankees' case. They also had their best prospects were shortstops, Volpe, Peraza, others coming up, so I kind of understood, even though both left-handed would have fit New York uh, very well, um, you know, and Harper is on record as saying he loved the Yankees and Came up uh, wearing a number to honor Mickey Mantle. Uh, you know, how hard did you try there uh, with the Yankees? Uh, was there ever an opportunity? Did you ever get a chance to meet with them on either of those two players? 
Well, remember uh, the idea of we canvas every team in baseball for every player. Why? Because we really want to know what teams think. We want to know why a per because I like to give our the players we represent a very broad scale of why someone is or is not interested in them and for what reasons. So we always open the door for every player to every team as part of the due diligence process. Secondly, though, not to think that teams don't do expansive due diligence on players. You know, I talked to Brian Cashman about all those players, and he reached out to me and does his due diligence. And that's all part of being, I think, a thorough general manager. And so there was no question that they wanted to know as much as they could know so that if those if that decision-making came. I remember in Mark Teixeira, the Yankees were not involved in making offers early on. They did all their due diligence. And then, you know, Cash came to me in January and said, hey, we've made the decision that we're, we're going to move forward and make offers on this player. So their due diligence was rewarded. So it's not like, you know, very competent front offices avoid these players. They don't. They all do their due diligence. But there is a next step about the economic commitment. And, you know, uh, baseball is not only played on the field competitively. There's a great competition among owners and among front offices for talent. And much like the game, you got to compete. You've got to go win a market. You've got to overcome the obstacles of competition to get these rare, great players. And so we encourage that. And we certainly create forums for it. And uh, But again, a lot of people say, oh, organizations made great mistakes. They didn't discuss these players. I go, no, they all discussed it. They all went through the due diligence of it. The question is, when you get into that meeting, with ownership and you have those discussions, the, the, then the economic commitment that supports the next step um, is then the barrier that the equation that either fits or not as to their decision-making. Why don't we wrap it up with this guy? Do you want to make some news with us? Uh, is Michael Conforto going to opt out of his, the $18 million he's owned in 2024? <laughs> One thing I know, Joel, is that Michael has a decision to make and he has actually told me what he's going to do. <laughs> and, and since it's just the three of us and we've known each other so long, you want you, you're just, I, dying I, I actually, he's told me that he's going to make his decision on the day of the opt out. So you're the first to have that. Yes. <laughs> Good yeah, try, that's, Joel. That's, that's well played. So I guess that means we'll just have to have you on yet again at some point, Scott, <laughs> to discuss Michael Conforto sticking with the Giants or his, or his likely free agency, I would assume. Always happy to be on this wonderful show, no doubt. <laughs> You're the best. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for joining us on the show. All right. Take care, guys. John, we've come to the close. Hit or error. 
I got to go hit. I got to go with Bruce Bochy. I mean, he might be one of the best managers of all time. He won three times World Series, three times with the San Francisco Giants when they were not favored in any of those uh, series or playoffs or anything. And one year he had a postseason in which his best hitter was Cody Ross. Nothing against him, but I mean, that's not a great lineup. And now with the Texas Rangers, they are a very good team. I think they're one of the better teams. They were certainly not as good as the Dodgers, the Braves, or even the Orioles in the regular season. And uh, he's in position once again. So my hit is Bruce Bochy, one of the greatest managers ever. I think we can say that now. Yeah, that's a good hit, John. I'm going to go with an era. Um, we have never had more pitchers and less pitching in Major League Baseball. I just watched a game four started by Andrew Heaney and Joe Mantiply and the Diamondbacks just essentially, they didn't even have a long man. So they're pushing Joe Mantiply. They're pushing Miguel Castro. This is the World Series. Where is the good pitching? Something has to be done again to emphasize the starting pitcher. I wrote about earlier in the week for our pay site plus for uh, post plus. Do we have to? go to 12 pitchers so that starters go longer and we train them to go longer. This is not good for the game uh, that that in our showcase moment, these are the kind of pitchers who are out on the mound. Yeah, and the opener is not a good look for the World Series. Um, you know, I, unfortunately, that was probably the best move strategically for the Diamondbacks. Uh, it's great that Fort came through uh, in the postseason and became a very viable number three starter for them. And it's good they didn't have two starters, but uh, you need you need four starters for the postseason. I, I remember when the Twins won with two good starters, so it's possible to do it, but it's not a good look for baseball to see a relief pitcher starting the game. Yeah, and if it wasn't for uh, Ryan Nelson, right, they would have had to throw a position player in a World Series game, which just would have been uh, not not very good. John, by the time we get back next, the World Series will be over. You and I will be at the general manager's meetings, which also are where I am right now in Arizona. So that will be, keep listening to the show, uh, a podcast from the New York Post. It's always difficult. You're in one place, I'm in another place. Andrew Hartz, Jake Brown, they make this possible, our producers. Uh, don't forget, this podcast drops noon uh, the day after, so it will be Thursday this week uh, on the Yes app. Uh, don't forget to uh, rate, review, subscribe, Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to our podcast to the show. And John, stick with us. We're just about to start the gold rush of the offseason. Maybe we'll hear about a manager for the Mets. Maybe we'll hear that the Yankees are making some changes. There's certainly going to be some sounds of cha-ching if you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Hayman.